The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome back. If you have your Bibles, we are in an ongoing study of John's Gospel, and today we are picking up the text at John chapter 7, beginning at verse 25. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to John chapter 7, verses 25 through 31. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So the context we've said over the course of the past several weeks is that Jesus was in Jerusalem. Now initially he was reluctant to go to Jerusalem. This was one of the major festivals in the Jewish calendar. It was known as the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. Incidentally, it is the feast that the Jews just completed this past week in Jerusalem. It was a time when they remembered their wanderings in the wilderness. They would actually go to Jerusalem, they would leave their homes, and they would build little temporary houses, little huts in which they would live, cover them with foliage and so forth, as a reminder of the fact that this world was really not their home, that they were pilgrims, and a reminder of their past history of how God had led them out of their captivity in Egypt and provided for them during their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. It was required of Jews, if possible, that they go to Jerusalem, and so Jesus disciples and his close family members were deciding to go up to the festival, and they wanted Jesus to go along. But of course, the real reason they wanted Jesus to go along was that he could renew um, his reputation. Uh, Jesus' popularity was flagging a bit by this point. Uh, they were always thrilled with Jesus so long as he was performing signs and wonders and feeding them and so forth. But when Jesus began to explain what the implications of his messiahship were for their lives... Well, we're told that many of the people took offense and they turned and they followed him no more. And so Jesus' family members and some of his disciples came to him and said, look, this, you can't let this happen. You've, you've, you need to go down to Jerusalem because that's the center of it all. Uh, that's where all of the action is. Go down there and do the things in Jerusalem that you have been doing up here. And immediately the people will be flocking to you. But Jesus knew that's not why he came. The miracles were never intended to be an end in and of themselves. The miracles were intended to point people to the man and to the message. And so Jesus said to his disciples and to his family members, 
you can go anytime you want, but I cannot go. My hour has not yet come, or my time has not yet come. And we said that that's a continuous theme in the Gospel of John that we hear Jesus talk about endlessly, that his time or his hour has not yet come. It's only at the end of the Gospel, as Jesus is in Jerusalem for the very last time, that we're told Gentiles are brought to him, and that's when he said, my hour has now Come, But at this point, his hour has not yet come, so he tells his disciples and his family members to go on ahead. He said he's not going. What he really meant was he was not going right then, because we're told that eventually he did go. But he entered the city quietly, incognito, as it were. But there were rumors floating about, about Jesus. Everybody had heard about his reputation up there in Galilee, so everybody was talking about him. It may have been that Jesus went quietly because he wanted to hear what people were saying. You know, he was interested in that sort of thing. On one occasion, he asked the disciples outright near Caesarea Philippi, who do men say that I am? And everybody seemed to have an answer. So Jesus was curious as to how the people were regarding him. But about halfway through the feast, we're told, he came out. He went up into the temple complex, and he began to teach and to preach. And this only excited the enthusiasm all the more. In fact, there were a whole series of questions that were floating, about three questions in particular that we deal with here in this seventh chapter of John. The first question was, is not this the man that they seek to kill? That was what the people were wondering. And when they meant they, they were talking about the Jewish religious leaders. I pointed out last week that Jesus had been in Jerusalem on previous occasions. And on one of those previous occasions, he had run afoul of the religious leaders because he had healed a man. But he healed the man on the Sabbath, which the scribes and the Pharisees regarded as a violation of the law. The law was clear, you're to do no work on the Sabbath. And so they were seeking to not just discredit Jesus by this point, but now that he'd come back and he had shown himself publicly and here he was preaching and teaching and people were listening to what he said, now they were determined to kill him. And they brought up these charges again that he had violated the Sabbath. Now, Jesus had a wonderful response to that. He talked about the fact that they themselves violated the Sabbath and made excuse for it. He talked about the fact that the law stated that on the eighth day, a male child was to be circumcised. That was the law. But what happened when the eighth day fell on the Sabbath? Did you avoid the law? Did you avoid the work? Jesus said, of course not. You made provision for that. It was perfectly permissible for you to go ahead and perform the circumcision. And he said, yeah, now here you are accusing me of violating the Sabbath. And he said, what I have done is actually made a man whole. Here was a man who was sick. Here was a man who was lame. I actually restored his body. And you, by your circumcision, on the eighth day are actually in the process of mutilating the body. And nobody had an answer for that. But you know, when somebody beats you at your own game, it can actually make you even angrier. And that is exactly what happened with the Jewish religious leaders. Now he had answered them, he had shamed them actually publicly, and they were embittered and they wanted to kill him. And so the next question that arose in the minds of the people was, well, if this is the man they're trying to kill, of course he is, but they're not doing it. Could it be that they have perhaps changed their mind about Jesus? Could it be that perhaps they've concluded that he is the Messiah? Now, of course, the answer to that is no. <laughs> 
They had not concluded that he was the Messiah. The only reason that they were not laying hands on him was because they were fearful. Fearful of the crowds who regarded him as a prophet. Now, what is interesting is that if you go back in the Gospel of John to the third chapter, there is an indicator that, yes, the scribes and the Pharisees believed that Jesus was a man who'd come from God. Because you'll recall that when Nicodemus, one of their number, a member of the Sanhedrin, had gone to Jesus under the cover of darkness, the first thing that he said to the Lord was this, We know that you're a man who's come from God because no one could do the things that you were doing unless God were with him. Well, that we would imply, since John has just told us that he was a ruler of the Jews, a member of the Sanhedrin, that the Jewish religious leaders recognized that Jesus could not do the extraordinary things that he was doing unless God was empowering him to do so. And yet, they refused to believe. Now, what we're going to see in just a moment is that that was not doubt. That was something entirely different. But the answer to the second question, can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? The answer is no. And if they did, they nevertheless refused to believe it. And so there was all of this conversation going back and forth, all of these rumors flying about Jerusalem, about Jesus. Who is he? What has he done? But we're told that there were some people, even though that there were many that did not believe, there were some who did believe. And they asked a third question. And the third question was this. Well, if he's not the Messiah, when the Messiah shows up, is he going to do more than this man has done? I mean, look at what this man has, has done. Where he goes, the eyes of the blind are open, the lame leap for joy, lepers are cleansed, even dead people are raised from the dead. Is the Messiah going to do more than this man has done? That was the question they asked. And I think that that is a question worth asking today. I think that's a question we all need to ask ourselves. It's a very important question. If Jesus is not the Savior of the world, if Jesus is not the Messiah, if Jesus is not the answer to all of our problems, then who is? Who, who can possibly do more than Jesus Christ has already done? That question reminds us, I think, that yes, Christianity is an evidence-based Religion. Now, I have said this many times before, but it bears repeating. True faith, Christian faith, is not hope against hope. It's not credulity. It's not simply believing in something simply because we can't bear the thought of the alternative. This is one of the unique aspects of Christianity. It is based upon events that actually happened in history. That's what the incarnation in many respects is all about. That God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, at one point in time and space came down and became one of us. No other religion in the world claims that. So ours is an evidence-based faith. And so it's worth asking the question, when the Messiah comes, will he be able to do more than Jesus Christ has done? Can anybody do more than Jesus Christ has ever done? You know, one of my favorite apostles is Thomas. I always think that poor Thomas gets a bad rap. When you think of Thomas, the only thing that most people think of Thomas is that he's what? 
Doubting Thomas. That's what we call him. And I think that's really unfortunate for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's unfortunate because Thomas was not the only one who doubted. We're told that all the disciples doubted. Thomas was just made an example. (laughs) But all the rest doubted as well. When Peter and John arrived at the tomb on that first day of the week, Peter didn't go in and see that the tomb was empty and say, oh, he's been raised. We're told that Peter was troubled by it all. He was trying to figure out exactly what had happened. He didn't understand. He was trying to put all the pieces together. Something had happened, but he wasn't sure exactly what it was. They all doubted. So that's one reason why I feel bad for poor Thomas. He gets singled out. And the other reason I feel bad for Thomas is that what Thomas was asking for was not bad. When the disciples said to to Thomas, we have seen the Lord, he said, I tell you the truth, unless I could take my fingers and put them in the nail prints, and unless I could take my hand and put it in the side, I will not believe. He said, I want proof. I want evidence that this actually took place. We sometimes look down on Thomas because he required evidence. Well, I want you to understand there's nothing wrong with requiring evidence. As a matter of fact, that is why the Gospel of John was written. You get to the end of the Gospel of John, John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, and the author of this Gospel said, Jesus did many other signs that are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, John says, I've recorded everything in this Gospel. I've written this entire account so that you can know that these things happen and so that you can believe. So the problem was not that Thomas was asking for proof. And furthermore, as I said earlier, there is a profound difference between doubt, which is what Thomas was going through, which is basically being torn between two opinions, and what the Jewish religious leaders were guilty of, which is unbelief. That is to say, the preponderance of the evidence had persuaded them that, yes, Jesus was the Messiah, but they still refused to believe it. Now, that's not doubt. That's willful unbelief. And that's why Jesus said that they were guilty of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which was the unforgivable sin. See, it's the work of the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin, and of the need for righteousness, and that Jesus Christ is the Savior. Well, what happens if you are convicted of your sin, of your need for righteousness, and you are persuaded that Jesus is the Messiah, and yet you still refuse to accept him or acknowledge him or believe in him? Well, Jesus said, then there's no forgiveness of sins, because what else can be done? That's what the Jewish religious leaders were guilty of. The problem for Thomas was not that he required evidence, folks. The problem with Thomas was that he'd always already been given ample evidence. <laughs> he'd been with Jesus for three years. He'd seen Jesus open the eyes of the blind. He'd seen Jesus cleanse the lepers. He'd seen Jesus raise people from the dead, at least three people that we know of. Jairus' daughter, the widow of Nain's son, and of course, Lazarus. What more evidence did he need? (laughs) Presumably he was on the boat when Jesus calmed the waves. He was on the boat when Jesus came walking on the water. He was there when Jesus took the bread and the fish and multiplied them and fed 5,000 people. What more did Thomas 
need. That's the reason why Jesus upbraided him. Not because he required proof, evidence. The very fact that Jesus appeared to his disciples in bodily form was to give them the proof that they needed. And you'll notice that Jesus was merciful to Thomas anyway. He said, come here, Thomas. Come over here, Thomas. You, you wanted to see. Well, come on. you imagine what it would have been like for poor Thomas when Jesus suddenly appeared there in their midst and said, all right, Thomas, I understand that you require some proof. Well, come on over here and take a look at these nail prints. There's a great painting by Caravaggio that, that shows Thomas and Jesus. It's called Doubting Thomas. And you see Jesus showing the wound to Thomas, and Jesus is guiding Thomas's hand into the wound. I think that's a wonderful picture because I could just imagine what Thomas said when all of a sudden Jesus appeared and said, Oh, Thomas, by the way, come over here. I want to show you something. No, that's okay, Lord. That's, I got it. I, I'm, okay. I'm all right. No, 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 Thomas. You're, you're, I, come here. And he guides his hand into the wounds and into the nail prints, and he says, now stop, stop doubting and believe. So the problem is not that we require evidence. The question is, how much more evidence do we require in order to believe in Jesus Christ? Reminds me of that old hymn, How Firm a Foundation one of my favorite hymns, and the first stanza goes like this. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? What would it take? What more can Jesus do? If you're looking for a Messiah, if you're looking for a Savior, if you're looking for a Deliverer, can anyone do more than Jesus Christ has done? That's the question. Well, it's worth exploring. What has Jesus Christ done? Some years ago, a man by the name of Josh McDowell wrote a book entitled Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I think that's a good title for this section I want to provide you with evidence that demands a verdict. You may recall that John the Baptist had been preaching in the wilderness, and he had had a tremendous response by the people. They had been coming out, and they had been confessing their sins as he preached, and they had been baptized by him in the Jordan River. But you'll recall that John the Baptist ran afoul of King Herod, and eventually he was arrested, and he was locked away in a prison. And I think every indicator suggests to us that John was a very active personality. He was a strong personality. And basically, when he was locked away in prison there in the desert, he had his wings clipped. And you know, sometimes when disaster or difficulty befall us, we begin to doubt. Was, was I really on the right track? Was I wrong to believe? I, I thought that Jesus was the Messiah. It's, it's, it's worth noting that even people like John the Baptist, whom Jesus described as the greatest man ever born of women, even John had doubts. Now, not unbelief, but he certainly had doubts as to Jesus. But he did the right thing. He asked for evidence. He asked for proof. We're told that John sent his disciples to Jesus. And he said, was I mistaken? Are you the one? Or shall we look for another? And do you remember how Jesus responded? Jesus said, you go back and you tell John. 
that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and even the dead are raised. Blessed is he who does not take offense on account of me. What did Jesus do? He graciously provided John the Baptist with the evidence. That's an important thing to remember. You know, sometimes our emotions can play tricks on us. It's easy to believe when everything is going your way, folks. When everything is rosy and everything is lovely. It's harder to believe when disaster befalls us, when difficulty comes, when illness strikes. That's when we really struggle, isn't it? And it's in times like that that we need to go back and take a look at the evidence. Take a look at what Jesus Christ has done. Some years ago on Christmas, I think it was my first Christmas here at St. Philip's, that would have been eight years ago now, I preached a sermon entitled, It's a Wonderful Life. You can actually go back and listen to it because we archive all those sermons. But it was entitled, It's a Wonderful Life. It was a takeoff. If you remember that sermon, and I know you all remember it. I mean, it was just so memorable. But it was a takeoff on Frank Capra's classic holiday film, It's a Wonderful Life, starring Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed. Now, you know the story in that movie. It's the story of a young man by the name of George Bailey. And George Bailey is this young man. He's got a family. He's got a business and so forth. But disaster befalls him. Difficulty. He's falsely accused of something. And in a fit of despair, he comes to the conclusion that his life has actually been worthless and that the people that are closest to him would probably be better off if he had never been born. And so one night he goes out in the midst of a blizzard to a bridge and he's going to throw himself off. But you know what happens. He is saved through the timely intervention of his guardian angel, Clarence who gives George Bailey this wonderful and precious gift, the opportunity to see what the world would have really been like had he never been born. And what follows is an absolute revelation. Remember what happens? You'll see the things up there on the screen. The first thing that happens is that George comes to the realization that had he never been born, this wonderful bucolic town of Bedford Falls where he was living would have actually become sleazy Pottersville. This nasty place that was filled with gin joints and pool halls and amoral people. And all because George was not there to stand up to old man Potter, the slumlord who wanted to run the place. He discovers very quickly that had he never been born, the respected pharmacist in town, Mr. Gower, would have been sent to prison for accidentally poisoning a child. And all because George had not been there to help Mr. Gower recognize his mistake. He discovers that had he never been born... His childhood friend Violet would have become a pickpocket and striptease artist, and all because George was not there to give her some much-needed advice in a time of struggle. He discovers that had he never been born, his Uncle Billy would have ended up in an insane asylum, and his mother would have ended up presiding over a run-down old boarding house, and all because George was not there to carry on the family business when his father suddenly died from a heart attack. He discovers that had he never been born, hundreds of servicemen in World War II on a troop transport would have perished, and all because his brother Harry, a decorated Navy pilot, was not there to rescue them. And Harry was not there to rescue them because George had not been there to rescue Harry from drowning as a child. He discovers that he had never been born. His lovely wife, Mary, and their children, Pete, Janie, Tommy, and Zuzu, 
well, the children would never have been born. And his wife, who was so beautiful and vivacious, would have ended up a spinster librarian, afraid of her own shadow. You know, the story in the end, George comes to the realization that while his life was by no means perfect, it certainly was a wonderful life and it made a difference. And in that sermon, I asked the question, have we ever stopped to consider how different our world would be if Jesus Christ had never lived his wonderful life? We ever thought to think about how different our world would be if Jesus had never been born? Let's just think about a few things. You know, Western civilization gets a bad rap these days. Really does. You get Jesse Jackson down there saying, hey, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go. And many of the colleges and universities, you know, that used to be a staple in all colleges and universities in North America and in Britain, a class on Western civilization. How many of you, I see a lot of gray hair out there, how many of you actually, and some no hair, but how many of you took a class on Western civilization? It was required. Now many of the most distinguished universities in the land no longer offer it because it's regarded as oppressive Western civilization. Listen, folks, this is not a matter of opinion. All you have to do is go back and look at the history of the world, and you will discover that much of what is noble and lovely and pure in our world today is the direct result of Western civilization. Now, that's not to say that it's always been perfect, but it nevertheless is a fact that much of what is great and noble in the world is the result of Western civilization. Moreover, everything that is noble, pure, and lovely in Western civilization is the direct result of Christianity. Just think about the following things. If Jesus Christ had never been born, if Jesus had never lived his wonderful life, what a difference it would have made in terms of politics. You realize that all democracies in the world today, true republics, representative forms of government, actually trace their lineage back to Christianity. Now, I know some people will say, well, now Athens had a democracy. It was not a pure democracy, and whatever it was, it was very short-lived. All the forms of government that we know today are the direct result of a Christian heritage. This nation, our Constitution, our Declaration of Independence were not our first founding document. The first founding document was what was known as the Mayflower Compact. It's called the Birth Certificate of America. And it was built upon two things, the long tradition of English common law and the morality set forth in the Holy Bible. It's no exaggeration to say and I can supply you with ample evidence to this effect, that if Jesus Christ had never been born, there would never be a United States of America. One of the great battle cries during the American Revolution was this one, no king but King Jesus. If Jesus Christ had never been born, what a difference it would have made in terms of education. Every single one of our earliest colleges and universities were established as Christian institutions. Did you know that? In 1636, this is what the founders of Harvard University said. This is Harvard, by the way. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well that the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ and to lay Christ in the bottom as the only true foundation for all sound knowledge and learning. That was Harvard, folks. 
far cry from what it is today, but that's what it was founded to be. That was their guiding principle. Dartmouth University was established to train missionaries to take the gospel to the Indians. King's College, now Columbia University, was founded to train young men to enter the Anglican ministry. Princeton University was founded to train young men to enter the Presbyterian ministry. College of William and Mary for the same thing, to prepare young men to enter the Anglican ministry. All these colleges, all of these universities for that purpose. And all of the other universities that flowed out of these, even the great land-grant universities of the 19th and 20th centuries, Penn State, Purdue, all of those took their inspiration from these earlier Christian institutions. Jesus had never been born, what a difference it would have made in terms of science and medicine. In 1936, Albert Einstein said this. He said, the great mystery of the universe is its comprehensibility. He says, the universe makes sense. That, that, that's the greatest mystery of all. It is governed by laws, which implies if there are laws, there must have been a what? A lawgiver. He said, that to me is the greatest mystery of the universe. Johannes Kepler described science as thinking God's thoughts after him. Some of the greatest scientists in history have been people who have been devout Christians. Kepler, Pasteur, Mendel, Newton, Lister, Boyle, Faraday, and in more recent times, Francis Collins. What a difference it would have made in terms of medicine. In the Council of Nicaea, 325, that's where they hammered out the Nicene Creed, which we say every single Sunday is a profession of our faith. At that same council, where they hammered out the Nicene Creed, the church declared that in every sea city, that is, wherever there was a bishop, there was also to be established a place of healing, namely a hospital. Why? Because the Lord they served was the one who brought wholeness to body as well as soul. Think about some of the names of our hospitals. Holy Cross, St. Francis, Baptist, Mercy, St. John's. All of those are Christian names. <laughs> The oldest hospital in the world is Hotel Dieu in France, still in existence. And the oldest hospital in North America is Jesus of Nazareth Hospital in Mexico City, established by the Spanish in the 1500s. What a difference it would have made in terms of music, literature, and arts if Jesus had never been born. You and I would never have heard the Messiah the Oratorio, the Christmas Oratorio, or the Easter Oratorio by Bach. We've never heard any of the Christmas music at all. No joy to the world, no hark the herald angels ring. We never would have read the Divine Comedy, Ben-Hur, Paradise Lost, The Lord of the Rings, or the Chronicles of Narnia. You would have never even heard of them. You would have never seen the Pieta, the Sistine Chapel, the David by Michelangelo, St. Paul's Cathedral, Hagia Sophia, or Notre Dame. None of those things would have ever existed. Slavery existed in Jesus' day. Fully half of the population was enslaved to the other half of the population. It would be Christians who would eradicate slavery. It would be Christians who would eradicate the slave trade in more recent times in the British Empire. William Wilberforce and others who were inspired 
by the message of Jesus Christ and the redemption and the freedom that he offers that inspired them to campaign tirelessly. Jesus Christ has created the greatest, most lasting social revolution in the history of the world. And that is an established fact. Dr. James Allen Francis put it well in a poem that he wrote. You probably heard it. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book, never held an office, never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things one usually associates with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he held on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race, the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life. If Jesus Christ is not the Messiah, will the Messiah do more than Jesus has done when he appears? It's worth asking, isn't it? And perhaps the most important thing that Jesus Christ has done to prove that he really is who he claims to be is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. What more can you do than that? <laughs> Rise from the dead. Jesus told a parable on one occasion about a rich man and a poor man. You know the story, the rich man his name, tradition holds, is Dives. In the parable, the poor man's name is Lazarus. He sat outside the rich man's gate and longed for even the scraps that fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, Jesus said he was covered with sores from his head to his foot, and the, doors came, uh, the dogs came along and they would lick the sores. Man, it's just a pitiful situation. Well, he says both of these men die. The poor man ends up in paradise in Abraham's bosom. The rich man ends up going to hell, and he's in torment, and he sees this man, who he probably just gave a passing glance to from time to time as he was going out his gate, and he says to Abraham, he says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus down here to cool my parched tongue. And Abraham says, I'm sorry, but there is a chasm that has been set between you and me, and he cannot pass from here to you, and you cannot pass from there to us. I'm sorry. And so the man says, well then, at least do me this mercy, send him to my brothers, for I have several brothers and they're just as bad as I am. They're just as lost as I was. They don't believe. And he says, well, they've got the prophets. And he says, oh no, the prophets are not enough. But if somebody comes back from the dead, then they'll believe. You ever said that? 
You ever said to yourself, if God would just part the Red Sea for me, if somebody would just show up, come back from the dead, if I could just see a miracle, then I would believe. C.S. Lewis does a great job with this in his book, Miracles. He said, look, if you're already convinced in your mind that miracles cannot and will not take place, even if you were to see one, you wouldn't believe. You might scratch your head and say, oh, there's got to be some sort of natural explanation to this, but you would not believe. So the answer is no, no, they will not believe even if somebody comes back from the dead. But he did it. He did come back from the dead. And I encourage you, if you've ever doubted this, to go ahead and look at the evidence. Preached a sermon on this too, by the way. Back in the midst of COVID, I preached a sermon on the evidence for the resurrection. It's also archived, so you can go back and listen to that one as well. But if Jesus Christ died and was raised, folks, it is the most important event in the history of the world. Take a look at the evidence. One powerful piece of evidence is the fact of the empty tomb itself. You know, it's interesting to note that even secular sources acknowledge the fact that Jesus Christ walked this earth, that he was an historical figure. Some years ago, Richard Dawkins, the world's most famous atheist, got into a great deal of trouble. And he got into a great deal of trouble because he made this bold statement that Jesus Christ never even existed. And even the most secular, radical historians just brought the house down on him because there are all sorts of secular sources, aside from the biblical sources, that Jesus Christ was an historical figure, that he lived in Palestine in the first century, that he was ultimately crucified, and crucified, incidentally, under the order of the Roman procurator, Pontius Pilate. If you go to Caesarea Maritima today, where some of you went with me on this recent trip, you saw the evidence, an inscription about Pontius Pilate. It's written in stone all over the Middle East. Jesus Christ was an historical figure. He lived, he was executed by order of the Romans. And the question is, his followers say he was raised from the dead. Well, what's the proof of it? Well, as I said, one piece of proof is the fact that there was an empty tomb. Nobody produced a body, folks. It's the proverbial smoking gun. Why was that tomb empty? Incidentally, the Jesus movement was the only movement of the first century, Messianic movement, and there were a hundred of them in just a hundred years, one on average every single year, and the Romans always handled a Messianic movement in an attempt to overthrow their authority to say that somebody was Lord instead of Caesar. They always had a way of handling it. They killed the Messiah. Cut off the head, the body dies, and they did it over and over again. The Jesus movement is the only one in which they killed the Messiah, and it continued to grow until eventually it brought the Roman Empire to its knees. The tomb was empty. Now, there have been all kinds of explanations as to why that was the case. Some have suggested, for example, that the body was stolen. Well, you have to ask the question, well, if the body was stolen, who stole it? Well, somebody said the Jewish religious leaders, they stole the body. Well, that's ridiculous. They're the ones that wouldn't steal the body. They're the ones that wanted to put down the rumors that he was rising from the dead. What they would have done is bring out the dead, as they say in Monty Python. Bring out your dead. They would have brought out the dead. Same thing was true for the Romans. Did the Romans steal the body? They were the ones that didn't want the rumor to spread. Others have suggested, well, it was the disciples. The disciples stole the body. But you have to ask yourself, what would have compelled them to steal the body? Why would they have done it? 
They had more to lose than anyone. And the way they're depicted in the Bible is as fearful men who are hiding. They're afraid of the authorities. Do you really think that they're going to go out and steal the body and then for the next 40 or 50 years of their life suffer all kinds of persecution, deprivation, and even death for a lie? I love what Chuck Colson said about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. So lest you think nothing good could come out of Watergate, here it is. How? He said, because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured it if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Others have suggested, well, Jesus never died on the cross. He simply fainted. Let me tell you something, folks. It takes more faith to believe that than it does that God raised him from the dead. The Romans knew how to kill people. The tomb was empty. I ask you the question, when the Messiah comes, will he do more than Jesus Christ has done? What more evidence do you need in order to believe in him as the Savior of the world? And here's one thing more. I want you to understand that what Jesus has done, he still does today. He still provides us with ample evidence. I want to close today by leaving John for just a moment and turning to Luke. So if you've got your Bibles with you, turn to Luke. It's the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And he goes to his hometown of Nazareth. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus Christ said, that is why I came. And I want you to know that he still does those things today. The evidence is all around you. Some of the evidence is sitting right next to you in this room. Jesus is the one who proclaims good news to the poor in spirit. People who have nothing that this world can afford nevertheless find true joy in him. And though they may have nothing that the world offers because they have him, they regard themselves as the richest of people. He's been sent to proclaim liberty to captives. There are many people that are captive. Many people are in bondage today, bondage to all sorts of sins and addictions 
alcoholism, drugs, whatever it is, and Jesus Christ has freed them, and they'll tell you that he's freed them, that he set them free, broken the shackles, and given them liberty. A recovery of sight to the blind, people who could not understand why they're here, what it's all about, and they came to Jesus Christ, and all of a sudden the pieces began to fit. Life began to make sense. And they found that peace which passes human understanding. I want you to understand Jesus Christ still does these things today. And he can do them for you if he hasn't already. And so here is the question. It's the question that the people were asked. If Jesus is not the Messiah when he shows up, is he going to do more than Jesus has already done? Brothers and sisters, nobody can do more than Jesus Christ has done. And what he's done for others... He can do for you. Bring your cares, your concerns, your burdens, your worries to him. Let him open your eyes and set you free. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the question that those people asked. It's a good question. The evidence is all around us. Grant us the grace to take the time to actually look at it. And then under the weight of it, to surrender our lives to him, who is the way, the truth, the life, and the only way to the Father. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you.